Time for the Car Doctor on AM 950 WROL. Got a car question? Call us at 617-770-3030. That's 617-770-3030. Now, here's the car doctor, John Paul, on AM 950 WROL, the spirit of Boston. Good Saturday morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Car Doctor Program on AM 950 WROL, the spirit of Boston. My name is John Paul, the Car Doctor, here to help you with your car problems. And if you're listening and you say, hmm, I wonder where he is this weekend. Yeah, I'm still on vacation, and yeah, we're still still playing around with remote equipment, but it's all, it's all good. It's all good. Hey, I want to uh, give a little bit of a send-off to... The sports guys who were just on Sunrise Sports, great program. Uh, they uh, they actually started the program when they were, I think, in the eighth grade, um, and they've been doing the program now for four years. They're uh, they're off to college, and uh, and Kevin Chrism, who's been the, he's been the host of the show for as as long as it's been on, and he was uh, his co-host was Spencer Smith, who was there for I think two and a half or three years, and then uh, Patrick Shelby came in for the last year or a year and a half or so. I think Patrick used to fill in every once in a while as well. And uh, they're, off, they're off to college. They're, they're all grown up. They're not, they're not the uh, eighth and ninth graders that started the show. And, and uh, they, they, got, uh, they had a good little audience going with them, and they did a good program. And they, were, they started off, it was a taped program, and then they went to, a, a, then they went to live uh, between 8 and 8.30 every Saturday morning. And I'm pretty sure they didn't miss a program. I think once or twice in the whole time they pre-recorded something when they were supposed to be live. I think they I think they took a family vacation, but that was about it. So uh, good for them. Uh, I'm sure college radio will be looking forward to them when they, when they arrive at college. So best of luck to, uh, best of luck to, to all of them. And, uh, you know, especially uh, Kevin Chrism, who's who's been the driving force behind the show. Of course, Spencer and uh, Patrick. Best of luck to all of them, and uh, uh, they had they had a passion for it, and they enjoyed it, and that's what makes it fun. Well, this morning, in a little bit, we're going to be talking with uh, Eric Dregney. He wrote a he's an author. He's written quite a few books, but uh, one of them is about Vespa. And I think everybody has a memory about Vespa motor scooters, and uh, Eric put this book together, and we'll be talking to him in just a bit once Keith gets him on board with us. And then there's a lot of other things in the news, a lot of emails I got this week about a variety of different things. Uh, Subaru still seems to have a problem with batteries going dead if you leave the cars for a while. Uh, somebody's looking for an old car mechanic. We'll get to that. General Motors and Shell have uh, teamed up to come up with a method to pay for gasoline using an uh, embedded link right in the car, which uh, makes it makes it easier, I guess. So, uh, but they have they have come up with a method to take care of that. 
We'll talk about that in a little bit. Had a question about synthetic versus regular oil. We'll go over that. Um, question about road service for electric vehicles and where AAA stands on that. Uh, and quite a few different things. So we have a lot of things to talk about today. And uh, and, and Keith will let us know when uh, when we're ready to talk with uh, our guest, Eric, this morning. I, got him. I think we're ready. Oh, okay. According to, according to uh, Keith, we should be on board with uh, Eric Dregney. Eric, good morning, and welcome to the Car Doctor program here in Boston. Eric? Eric, good morning, and welcome to the Car Doctor program here in Boston. How are you doing? No. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. That's great. Uh, so let's, uh, you're, you're an author. You have quite a few books to your name, but this uh, latest one, The Life Vespa, um, I think everybody has a memory of Vespa scooters. Yeah, I know Vespas. Once you've been on a Vespa or even just seen Vespas, you're like, I, I need to have one of those. I need to go on a ride, and it's unforgettable. It's like having, as I say, it's like having wings under your feet. And and who, you know, everybody has an audience in mind when they write a book or, or, or you know, put a movie together or whatever the case is. Who was your audience you had in mind when, when you were putting this book together? Um, with this one, it was... Uh, you know, okay, I wanted to focus in on really the culture of scooters. So it's not just about people who are into restoring Vespas and Lambrettas and all these old scooters. It's more about, uh, you know, what is the whole culture around it, like the revolution that Piaggio started in Italy with these scooters and then how it just spread, especially to England and then across the U.S. a little bit. Because now we see, again, you know, we have this... You know, sort of another sort of scooter revolution with a reentry of of the Vespa back into the U.S. what ten some years ago. Um, so I think it's you know people who are into that culture, that Italian culture, and you know getting out and having fun. And and Vespa really was it was a method of transportation. It wasn't it wasn't a um, it wasn't an extra vehicle. It was in a lot of cases it was a vehicle that got everyone around right. Yeah, I mean, for Italy, it was essentially the vehicle that mobilized people, especially after World War II, because, you know, there have been American scooters and these other scooters, early French scooters and such. But, you know, with Italy, after the war, it was just bombed out and, you know, all. So they talk about how these airline airplane designers then took the old spare parts and sort of put together the Vespas. And that's sort of true and sort of, you know, a little bit of good history. But, you know, basically they needed to, uh, the people needed to get out, and especially women who were sort of relegated to, you know, cooking and doing all this other stuff. Suddenly they had these Vespas lying around that they could go anywhere. So they would fit into all these little Italian towns, you know, these teeny little alleyways all over the place so they could drive anywhere. So it really helped mobilize Italy and bring Italy into the, the 20th century. And uh, the other the other part, I think, if if people don't know anything about Vespa, one of the things they they have to know is Vespa and advertising. There were there were you know you talk about today product placement. Vespas were used in more print advertising than I don't know. It seems like than anything else that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, you know, and this I mean, even today with all of these things, you know. I'm, we think that it's like this cunning idea of, of Vespa and Piaggio to like place their scooters everywhere. But I think it's more that 
it's just natural, like, oh, let's, we need to kind of set up this scene. Let's put a, a scooter in there. Let's put a Vespa in there. That it's more, it's not that Vespa's even pained to do this. It's just sort of this icon. It's become really an icon of this, you know, piazza culture, you know, going around in the, the small square and everything. Um, and it's really become sort of this uh, touchstone of what, Italian things are, you know, just as we have the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the Colosseum, and the Vespa, really. And one of one of your one of your page headlines says Vespa's perfect design, so good looking, it must be Italian. And yeah. I just, I, I, I just, I just kind of love that line. It was, uh, you know, when you look at when you look at a Vespa scooter, it it does have a certain design to it. And I remember years ago talking to. Um, a, a vehicle designer, and we were talking about kind of classic design, and and he brought up things like the you know Fiat 124 Sport and uh, the Volkswagen Beetle, sort of timeless design, and the Vespa scooter was one of those one of those things. He just says this is timeless design, and and I think you have to look at it, and that's why it still works today. Yeah, the the designer Corradino Bascano, he um <clears throat> said. This kind of famous quote, it's like, the Vespa will always look like it does, even when it's riding, even when it's atomic powered and riding on the moon. Um, that, that basic design, it just sort of works. And granted, you know, and it's not that, you know, Vespa sort of made it perfect. Um, whereas, you know, there are other, definitely other good designs, some of them even slightly better, you know, like with the Lambretta. Um, but, you know, and there were these American scooters, but you look at them now compared to the Vespa, and they just look like these crazy little machines. Um, yeah, the Vespa is just just this great, iconic design. I mean, so much so that even the Guggenheim put it into their museum in New York, you know, the Frank Lloyd Wright Museum there, as sort of this symbol of Italian design, you know, along with Olivetti typewriters and all these different other things. You know, this was this is classic Italian design. Now, uh, you, you mentioned Lambretta as, I, I think I just caught you saying, a better design than Vespa, or is that what I heard? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah? as far as, yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, like, that's maybe sacrilege to people who are into Vespas. But the Lambretta was a, a kind of more of a, it's a sta- more stable machine, like longer, slightly longer wheelbase. The uh, front fork doesn't go as vertical, so it's a little more stable. Um, they're a little bit faster, but the problem was they were more expensive. And so, you know, Italy, after the war, they, you know, people didn't have money to invest in something like that, so they got the, the cheapest one. And the Vespas were probably a little bit more reliable since they were a slightly simpler machine, and so people could work on them everywhere. So, you know, that's kids, as soon as they break down, you know, you start, it's like an outboard motor, you start to, to take it apart and figure out how it works. That's one of the reasons that they've endured so long. Yeah. Now, why you said that, and, and I, I, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Craig Fitzgerald, who's a Vesper enthusiast, and I think he stole the line from someone else, and he is a diehard Vesper enthusiast and not, and not so much Lambretta, and, and uh, it's not a very politically correct thing. And I, like I said, I think he stole the line was, but I think he said that uh, a Lambretta uh, compared to a Vespa looked like a chubby girl in a bikini. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there's the big... <laughs> um, but you look at uh, some of the early Vespas, and they're very rotund and very... I mean, which are, you know, like in Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn, 
um, going on that Vespa. It's like it's a very round Vespa. And the yeah. Lambrettas were round, and then they became very sleek. And, you know, I mean, different models yeah. at different yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. And and in your book, you, you talk a little bit about your kind of first experience with scooters and is that was that part of was that part of the inspiration for the book too do you do you kind of fondly look back at at the scooter culture of maybe when you were younger yeah absolutely i mean it's i mean it was very striking you know the first time that i would see these scooters like i need to do that that's that's exactly what i have to do i mean i still have this idea that i want to rent or buy a couple of Vespas and travel around the island of Sicily for a couple of months. And, you know, I mean, there's still all these ideas, like these long trips with Vespas, that's what we have to do this, right? I mean, it just sticks in your mind more than anything else. I mean, it's, I mean, sure there's car culture and all of that, but I think the, you know, Vespas, it's more like suddenly you can move everywhere and you're out in the open too. You know, you feel the breeze, you feel everything that's going by. You're not closed in as you are in the car. Yeah, it, it it really is. And I was looking at I was looking at one of one of the photos in the book, and, and the book is loaded with great photos. And and there's a photo of a, a, a Vespa with sort of a checkerboard pattern with a guy in a checkerboard suit. And uh, uh, my colleague Craig has a yellow Vespa with the uh, checkerboard pattern. I I think he stole it from one of the early advertising. But uh, it it is just it's an interesting it's an interesting. Uh, form of transportation, and then sort of the mod culture came along. And how did how did that affect Vespa, either positively or negatively? Well, you know, both uh, Vespa and Lambretta, they didn't really know what to make of all these mods because they, you know, it was this rebel culture there that took on all things Italian as their sort of rallying cry, um, and although ultimately approved it, you know, they sold a ton of scooters, but you know, they viewed them as sort of these crazy, you know, rebels that were going to take their their beautiful design that they, like, Piaggio, Enrico Piaggio, who, designed, who was the owner of, of Vespa, I mean, they he basically, you know, was very anti-communist and very sort of, he's a businessman. And so you get these young, you know, punks in, in England driving around and, you know, fighting it out with the rockers, and it's not necessarily good publicity, having them beating up each other down on the beaches of Brighton, and then, like, oh, my God, these, this is what the Vespas represent now, you know? Sort of like with uh, the cafe racers, the BSAs, and all these other motorcycles that, sure, it's great, they sell their motorcycles, but is this the image they want? Because they want mm. it you know, to be this good, wholesome thing. Um, like with Harley-Davidson, that... They're a motorcycle company, first and foremost, and so everyone, but there's this whole image around them, and I think it took them a long time to sort of embrace it and realize, well, you know, we're selling a ton of motorcycles because of this. Yeah, it's sort it, of a it, scary idea for the, those companies. It really is true, and one of, one of the things Vespa has, which uh, no other scooter that I know of had, and, and no motorcycle that I can think of with the exception of sort of a Russian military motorcycle had a spare tire. Yeah, and yeah. a spare tire, a spare tire that you could actually change without, without uh, complicated tools. So it yeah. really did. It really did make for a uh, a vehicle that you could you could travel you could travel 
long and far and, and know that if you did get a flat tire, you have a spare and you can change it and you can be on your way again. Uh, every once in a while uh, near the town that I live in, I, I see a Vespa with a sidecar. And I always look at that and say, hmm. And, and but, it, but it also, every time I look at it, it makes me smile. Yeah, no, they're great. And, you know, they're... The engines, I mean, some of the newer Vespas are much more powerful than the, the ones, the vintage ones, obviously. Um, but, yeah, sidecars, they can barely pull those things. Um, and this idea, too, you know, that you can get your hands dirty and fix that tire, and you can you can do this. And there's all these tales of Vespa travelers going around the world and all these crazy, dangerous trips all over the place because, well, you can do it. And if you can afford to do it, and all you just you just need some gasoline, and you know your wrenches, and there you go. Yeah, it it really I think it really did sort of like the Model T with cars, you know, put the American public on the roadway. In a lot of cases, Vespa did exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, whether it was in you know the the end of war uh, war torn Italy or or um, you know to some extent. You know, depending where you go, and I think scooter culture is part of that. Whether you go to an island like Bermuda, where ninety nine percent of everybody rides a scooter, or you know something something as fabulous as uh, as the design of a Vespa. And again, I I really I really like the design. And you know, over the years, there's there's certainly been uh, some some knockoff designs of Vespa, and I guess even some licensing. I guess Bajai in India licensed some of the Vespa design, uh, but they're not Vespas still. Yeah, no, and that's it's one of the things I think Italy and you know Piaggio with Vespa in particular has realized that they need to hold. It's not just about producing. I mean, it is pr- about producing lots of scooters, but not just mass quantities because they have to keep that quality up because it's a name. Um, because some of these, you know, the new Vespa, I mean, new, it's, you know, 10, 15 mm. years old now, but it's, um, I mean, it's an amazing design, and it's it's probably almost double the price as some of these other little knockoffs, and because it's metal, because it's a quality scooter made to last, um, and which is a little ironic because the early vintage Vespas, they were made just to put people on the road, and they just happened to be, good enough quality that people could keep running them for years and years. And you see, you go to Italy and you still see those classic ones running all over the place just because you can fix them up. Yeah, they, you really can. And you and you see, you see what people do with Vespas and not so much what they, you know, what they kind of turn them into, but you also see them as a, uh, it truly is a form of transportation. And it's not just the you know the cute Italian couple with a bottle of wine and a loaf of loaf of bread on their Vespa, yeah. but people are really using these to 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 do work, to do a lot of things, and you know uh, uh, you know carry carry lumber on them to go home and build something, and and they're, they're pretty amazing. Yeah, no, I love when you, especially when you go into southern Italy and you see these Vespas, and you get whole families driving on them still. You know. Like, Five people sometimes will be packed onto one of these little Vespas. And actually, you know, the, um, the very sort of first Vespa was called the Paperino, which Donald Duck, you know, this early design. And they were trying to find, they, were, they knew that about maybe 50 of them were made, and they're trying to track them down from the museums and such. And they found one of them down in Sicily, still running. And this is from 19, what, 1945, 46. Wow. 
super old scooter that they didn't even really have parts for because it was just sort of this one-off deal. And but it was they could still keep that thing going. Yeah. No. Uh, how was how was the Pope involved with Vespa? Oh, well, okay. So in Italy, when they have all these big ceremonies and anniversaries and all this kind of stuff, they always bring out, they try to bring out the, at least a local priest or the cardinal if they're lucky, and sometimes the Pope comes out. So the Pope will come out and you know, bless the, the millionth Vespa and do all of this. So, And the, the, um, the Vatican soon realized that to get the priests out to these small towns all over the place, suddenly... With a Vespa, they could go twice as far. So they could cover all that ground. They could, you know, bless all of these people, all these baptisms, marriages, whatever they needed to do all over the place. So the, the Vatican essentially uh, made the, the Vespa holy as one of their tools of spreading the word. Hmm. Well, it, it, you know, interesting and, and certainly, uh, you know, something I don't think most people knew about Vespas and, and sort of the, the history behind them. But I, I still look at it as it's just, it's just a cool looking scooter. And, and even though Vespa made, uh, I guess, made an attempt at, at some three wheel cars and, and even, and even sort of a, a, you know, a car that looks like it was set to, you know, run a land speed record. I think still yeah. you look at you you look at Vespas and you go you know they're they're really designed to have fun they're designed for transportation and they're designed to have this timeless uh, look about them that whether you look at a nineteen you know sixty one Vespa or a, or a you know two thousand fifteen Vespa they look enough alike and they and they actually just they just look they look good forever and I think that's what makes the design really special about them. Yeah, no, it is. You think about how many cars, when you go back that far, basically have that same look to them, and, you know, they really don't. Um, yeah, so the, with those, the three wheels cars, I mean, those are still going all over the small towns of Italy, you know, so those are still these very utilitarian vehicles. So those are called the Ape cars, Ape, which mm-hmm. means B in Vespa, which means wasp, so sort of a you know, spin off of the, the, the classic Vespa name and design yeah it, it really is and vespas are something that uh, they're seen completely around the world right there is there any place that vespas aren't you know i mean in the way in the u.s we have probably have fewer vespas than most places um just because here it's such a car culture and you know especially now with i mean i know driving out on my bicycle or scooters you know that people are, are on their phones and so the danger around isn't the actual, I mean, the scooters are somewhat dangerous, but it's mostly the drivers that are the danger. So I think here we probably have fewer scooters in most places. Yeah, you know, we could eliminate a lot of uh, distracted driving issues if we, if everybody rode a scooter, right? Yeah. <laughs> Although it's always interesting in Italy when you see people like smoking a cigarette while driving their Vespa or talking on their phone on a Vespa, I'm like. Really? You think you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you give people the opportunity; they'll always, they'll always try to do it. But yeah, I mean, I look at I look at Vespa. And I, I was t- talking with someone last night about about today, and you know, I look back and I remember when I was when I was a teenager. A, a friend of mine, Ralph, got a Vespa from someplace, and and the thing barely ran. And after a couple of weekends of tinkering with it, we got it to run, and it became his form of transportation for a while. And, and, some, and somebody said, well, Vespa. And I said, you know, go back, uh, 
45 years to the movie American Graffiti and kind of the nerdy yeah, kid, uh-huh. you know, wrote a Vespa, you know, and, yep. and, the, and the woman I was talking to said, oh, yeah, I remember that scene. So, yeah. um, you know, so everybody, I think everybody wants you kind of hone in on it, knows, knows Vesper exactly, and, uh, and, and uh, I think even the Beatles had something to do with Vesper, didn't they? Yeah, well, it's the whole, I mean, Beatles, early mobs, and, you know, so they're all of that. Right. And then, you know, and in the U.S., we had Sears distributed Vespa. So, I mean, all, all of the, the all showrooms state, of Sears. The Vespa, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then Lambretta was distributed by Montgomery Ward. So, sort of the rival companies, the rival scooters, and they're everywhere for a while. No, it, it's 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 a it's a great book, and it you know to me the the photos in the book and how you laid them out and how you how you put them together really really shows kind of the history of Vespa. And every photo I looked at sort of put me back in a little bit of time where oh yeah I kind of remember that or uh, or I wish I was there for that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Whether whether it was. Uh, Again, Italian advertising or things that happened here in the states, or or like you said, the mod culture of of the time. Whatever the case was, it, it's just something that sort of sort of uh, I don't to me just seemed like a trip down memory lane. It, it yeah, like no, and, fun. yeah. Well, and memory lane, but they're also still going strong, which is kind of fun because you know they have these beautiful new scooters, and you like you go to certain towns. I mean, you mentioned Bermuda, but. When you go to like Florence, Italy, and they're just everywhere because no one can, you can't can't really drive your car downtown, and so they just scooters everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it really is, and and I think Vesper is one of those things that it gives you. It's hard to get kind of a certain level of. And anybody who knows me knows that I'm absolutely not interested in this, but a certain level of sort of expensive style without spending a lot of money. Yeah. 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 No, it's true. And, I mean, that's where you, you, know, you get all these the scooter clubs all over that, you know, you find these old Vespas and you can fix them up and you can have this great ride. I mean, I found a Lambretta for 70 bucks, you know, 20 years ago and fixed it up and was able to you know, have this really cool ride. And you can do that. You, it's not... Like, I mean, sure, there's Ferraris and Lamborghinis that are, you know, the icons of Italy as well. But, I mean, in a way, like, who's going to have a, a Ferrari? No one, um, <laughs> unless you're super rich. And But a Lambretta or a Vespa, it's, it's within anyone's reach. Yeah, you're you're right. Here here in the Boston area, there's the Lars Anderson Auto Museum, and they always do this Italian car show, this... Uh, uh, and it's always, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis and, and other Italian cars that show up at it. And, you know, it never fails if someone shows up in a Vespa, and the Vespa turns as many heads as, as you know, a bright red million-dollar Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty it's really amazing. more fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's the, there's the old saying that says it's a lot more fun to drive a slow car fast than a fast car slow. So, you know, yeah. going, going 40 miles an hour on a Vespa... Um, uh, certainly can be uh, certainly can be exciting. Yeah, well, it's much more. Yeah, you can go forty miles an hour on an old Vespa. I mean, I got my old Lambretta up to fifty-five once down a big hill, and just the most terrifying experience I've ever had. You know, you try to you do that on a Lamborghini, and you're barely moving. 
That, that's right. That's right. You're still in first gear, and and uh, everybody looks at you and wonders why why you're there to start off with. But yeah, it it really is. It really is an uh, an interesting vehicle. And like you said, it's a vehicle that's still still is built today. But I think you know certain people think of Vespa as there was a time in their life where there was a Vespa in their life, and it's almost like. Uh, you know, an old girlfriend to a lot of people, and and they look at they look at a Vesper and go, huh? I, yeah, I remember 1968. You know, my friend had one, or I had one, or or something like that, and it just brings them back. And I think that's that's a lot of what your book does, the life Vespa. So, uh, so where can people find your book? Hello, hello. He's still there. So, Eric, where can people find your book? Eric. Yeah. Oh, I we lost you there for a second. So, where can people find your book? Um, well, of course, the magic of the internet is everywhere. Um, so, you're in, in Boston. I know, and there's uh, I am Books. They should have it. Uh, there's lots of you know local bookstores should have it. I hope. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and of course, uh, uh, Motor Books, right? Uh, the uh, the, yeah. the 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 people that put the book together. And uh, no, it it was great to have you on the program and join us here, up here in Boston. And again, the book is the Life Vespa, and uh, you have uh, quite a few other books to your name. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I encourage people. I'm, actually com- I'm coming out to the area at the end of November. Going to do a reading. Uh, at Italy out there and at I Am Books. So. Oh, okay, great. All right, well, you never know. We might run into each other. All right, good. All right, Eric, thanks for taking a little time out of your Saturday morning to join us up here in Boston. All right, it's great to chat. Talk to All you later. All right, take care. Bye-bye. That was Eric Dregney. He is an author, and his latest book, The Life Vespa, is is a great is a great book. It's a it's a it's a it's a good looking book. And if you're a motor scooter enthusiast, you'll really love taking a look at this book. It, it's just it's a it's a fun book, and it's uh, everything from sort of the boutique side of Vespa to uh, to the rock and roll side of Vespa. It's just it's just a it's just a fun a fun read. And for somebody like me who doesn't read. Uh, it has a lot of pictures in it too, so I ha- I hate to say that to a writer because you know they they spend so much time writing, but uh, I like the pictures too. The pictures remind me of a certain time, like I said. Why don't we take a quick break? Uh, my name's John Paul. This is the Car Doctor Program. You're listening on AM 950 WROL, the Spirit of Boston, or 100.3 FM, or maybe you're listening on the app, uh, which you can get on all kinds of places. iHeartRadio, tune in. And, of course, WROL.com. We'll be right back. This is a special notice to all U.S. taxpayers. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's good news. Due to the financial hardship many are facing in today's economy, the IRS has made it easier to settle delinquent tax problems through a federal program called the Fresh Start Initiative. Qualifying for this program will resolve your tax problem, end all collections, and possibly reduce your back taxes by up to 90%. If you are facing wage garnishments, liens, bank levies, audits, or pay-
payroll taxes, it's not too late. Your circumstances may qualify you for this special program, protecting your savings and your assets. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's no need to worry anymore. Call the hotline at Victory Tax Solutions to see if you qualify and potentially save thousands. For this free information, call 800-813-1105. 800-813-1105. That's 800-813-1105. Now you can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-648-9175. 800-648-9175. That's 800-648-9175. AM 950 WROL Boston, home of the Irish Hit Parade, Saturdays 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. A service of Salem Media Group. The more our family grew, the smaller our old car got. So we upgraded to a Honda Odyssey. It's from Kelly Blue Book's 2016 Best Value brand and comes with standard features like Bluetooth, so my wife can remind me of all the things I've forgotten to bring home. Ah, the diapers. Go to www.hondacarsofboston.com or 100 Broadway, Route 99 in Everett, Mass. Call 617-276-1179. Based on 2016 brand image awards from Kelly Blue Book, visit kbb.com for information. See dealer for financing details. Program on AM 950 WROL, the Spirit of Boston. My name is John Paul, the Car Doctor here to help you with your car problems. Running the board is our buddy Keith, uh, who is uh, uh, learning some new stuff. So that's that's always good. Uh, it's a uh, I'm on Cape Cod. It's a kind of rainy, cloudy day on the Cape, it's, uh, but uh, got a couple projects done this week, so it's been it's been okay. Our phone number six one seven seven seventy thirty thirty six one seven. 770-3030. Let's talk to Joe in East Boston. Joe, good morning. Hey, good morning. Listen, I got a 2005 Honda Pilot. Yep. And the engine check light came on. And then after that, the VTM uh, 4 okay. came on. And I had a check somewhere, one of those auto things. Yep. And they said it was the um, knocker sensor. Uh, oh, knock sensor? Knock hmm. sensor, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. When, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, any, anything's possible. Did they tell you what the code was? Um, let me see the code. Uh, let me see. I got the thing so over here. It's going to be like P. Yeah, P O three two five. Um. Yeah, because I mean, sometimes the thing about the thing about codes is sometimes they can be a little bit misleading. Uh, but it is, yeah. There's a there's a sensor there that um, 
that measures engine knock. So just like the old days when cars used to ping and knock, uh, there's a sensor that actually adjusts the timing electronically through the car's computer system. And the knock sensor, uh, when it when the computer system detects a malfunction in the knock sensor, it will it will uh, trigger a check engine light. Although I'm surprised the um, the part with the transmission came up, but I suppose anything's anything's possible. Uh, but what happens is the 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 knock sensor is um, it could be a problem with the harness. It could be a it could be a wiring issue. Yeah, yeah. So you have to you have to look at that. I mean, most people will just automatically go and replace the knock sensor just to you know just to see. You know, sometimes it's you know it's one of those things that you can you kind of kind of try it and and you know see see how it's see how it's going to be and and see if that is maybe the the cheapest way around it um there there are certain sensors that i look at and i'm like you know i'll buy those kind of as an aftermarket and there's others that i want to buy from buy from the dealer and i think in this vehicle i would want to buy the factory knock sensor which is which is like maybe 50 50 55 dollars uh you could probably buy an aftermarket one for 25 or 30 but I think right. I'd want to, I think I'd want to go with the factory one just because they are very precisely calibrated, and if okay. and if you get an aftermarket one that's not not quite the same. I mean, you could get an aftermarket one that is the same company that manufactures the factory one. That'd be okay with. Uh, but I would I think I'd rather do that. It's not the easiest job to do though. It's. Uh, it's really? uh yeah it's well it's going to it's going to be a couple hours to replace it because it's uh okay. you need to, you need to take the intake manifold off no yeah so it's the the knock sensor is mounted under the intake manifold so you need to pull the intake manifold off to get to the knock sensor so it's going to be a couple hours worth of labor to do it so the the manifold is the pipe that goes into the uh what do you call it? No, the intake man. No, the intake manifold's on the top. Think, think if you think of an old old time car, it's the thing the carburetor right. mounted to. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so you have to take the intake manifold off, the ejector rails. You know, take the fuel injector rails out of the way to get to the intake manifold to get to the knock sensor. So, uh, it, yeah. So you know, you're going to spend if you went to you know if you went to you know Joe's auto repair shop and Joe charged a hundred bucks an hour. You're going to spend, you know, two hundred fifty dollars or so to get this get this repaired. All right, but yeah. is it dangerous? Is it? Is it? What's it? You know. You know well, well, what it? The dangerous thing about it is that if it's if you needed to put a load on the engine, like you're going up a steep hill, and right. the engine started to knock and ping, uh, there's no way for it to adjust. The timing properly to oh, that, that over time it could cause a problem. So I would definitely right. want it. I would definitely want to get it taken care of. And, you know, do you right. have to do it? Do you have to do it over the weekend? No, you don't have to do it over the weekend. But you need you right. need to you need to think about you know taking care of it. And again, it's one of those things that it's not complicated once you get the intake manifold off. It's just it just unscrews into the top of the block of the engine and the new one screws in. But but I would mm. also look to make sure the the 
you know, the, a good mechanic will look at the wiring harness that goes to the knock sensor, and you know they'll stand on their head and look at where the harness goes into the into the manifold, and they'll just make sure there isn't something odd, like you know, a, a mouse crawled up in there and chewed through the wire or something. So, you know, so oh, you want to make sure, yeah, you want to make sure the wiring going to it's all right. all okay. You know, not melted or burnt or like I said, you know, chewed by a mouse or whatever the case is. So, um, right. You know, before you just automatically rip the manifold off, put a new sensor in, and put it back together, and hope for the best. So, well, why? This, you, okay. Yeah. Again, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, why, this, why are you why are you skeptic of saying you don't think so? Though, what else would it be? No, I mean that that you know the the thing about the um, the the icon that the other icon that came up about the transmission. Um, right. That just that got me a little that. You know that made me question it just a little bit, but where you gave me okay. the code, where you gave me the code number, I feel a little bit. Oh, I see. I, I feel a little bit better about it. So. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. So again, I think you're going to spend you know two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy-five dollars or so right. to you know pull the intake manifold, change the sensor, and again, I, it's one of those things I would want to go with the newer, you know, with the factory. Sensor because I don't think for the for the amount of labor it's going to take you know a couple hours labor to pull the manifold off and put it back on and you could save you could probably save twenty five or thirty dollars going with an aftermarket sensor I don't think I'd want to take the chance and know that the aftermarket sensor wasn't calibrated quite right and although oh, okay. it will, although it will work I'd rather know that I'm putting the factory one in and it's going to be as good as the one that was in there okay okay. All right, thank you. All right, thanks, Joe. Take care. All right, bye-bye now. 617-770-3030, is how you get through and talk to us about your car and your car problems. But it also seems like a good time to talk about a car review. And the car is the 2019 Toyota Corolla hatchback. It isn't exactly new. It's sort of a reimagined version of the Toyota IM that was once the Scion IM. You remember Scion? That was, uh, that was the, uh, the youthful version of Toyota. Well, they decided to stop Scion, but they kept some of the cars. The Corolla hatchback is powered by a new 168-horsepower, 2-liter, 4-cylinder engine. The horsepower is up about 20% from the previous IM model. The Corolla hatchback SE model, that's the subject of our road test, came with a continually variable transmission. A 6-speed manual is also available. I'm not usually a fan of CVT transmissions, but... I didn't know this was one, and, you know, a couple of times as I was driving, I said, oh, yeah, it's a CVT, but most of the time I didn't notice some of the odd characteristics that CVT transmissions uh, sometimes have. Uh, there's paddle shifters for those drivers looking for a little bit more control. Still not a big paddle shifter person. It's just not the same. The cloth-covered seats were supportive and comfortable with plenty of head and leg room. The controls for climate control and sound system relied less on the touchscreen of a test model and more on buttons and knobs. I like the way this is going. Uh, we were talking, you know, when we were talking with Eric earlier, uh, the idea of distractions while riding a scooter. Um, too much, Too much video... Too much video display, I think, is distracting. You put some knobs and buttons in, and you're able to, you know, reach over and grab the volume knob or grab the station tuning knob. It just makes it a little bit safer. Um, this model, uh, the dash layout, kind of had a contemporary look without, uh, while still being very functional, including the 2019 
uh, Corolla is Apple CarPlay in addition to Toyota's own smart app. Uh, Toyota's been a little slow to adapt to Apple CarPlay, and it's nice to see it in this. This brings all the features of your smartphone to the dash of this economy car. There's a decent-sized center console, glove compartment, and bins for storage, as well as cup holders and, a, and a door pocket storage. The rear seat can accommodate two adults, three in a pinch. Entry and exit from the rear seat for taller passengers is a bit of a challenge due to the low roof line, but once seated, even six-footers will find they have enough uh, headroom. I got back there, tried it out, put the front seat not quite all the way back, but it was, you know, if I put it kind of in the middle, there was enough head and leg room, certainly, and I felt comfortable. Three six-foot people in the back seat might be a bit of a stretch. Uh, safety is addressed with a full suite of standard features such as uh, electronic uh, brake force distribution, brake assist that helps you stop if you're not paying attention. In addition, there's lane departure warning with steering assist, automatic high beam headlights. Our test model also had LED headlights, which were great at night without being harsh to oncoming traffic. Performance from the 168 horsepower engine is pretty good. Not exactly sporty, but more than enough power for any driving condition. The engine stayed quiet and only got a bit thrashy when pushed hard during my time with the Corolla, I made some long highway drives, and according to the onboard computer system, which, frankly, can be sometimes a little optimistic, um, I averaged a pretty impressive 43 miles per gallon. That's closing in on hybrid territory. So 43 miles per gallon in a gasoline engine out on the highway is pretty good. Overall ride and handling are pretty good, only getting a bit unsettled over some poorly maintained roads. The Toyota Corolla is an affordable hatchback that has a decent price without feeling cheap. Fit and finish is quite good. The ride and handling is good or better than the competition. The Corolla may not be the most fun or most powerful vehicle in its class, but the Corolla is a perfect example of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, miles per gallon, EPA says 32 city, 42 highway. Again, I averaged about 50, 43 out on the highway, so beat the highway mileage. The average was actually uh, in the high 30s, so pretty good. The engine's a four-cylinder, uh, 168 horsepower engine, up a few horsepower from the year before, up almost 30, I guess. And price has tested with everything in it, with all the options that this car came equipped with, about $21,000. So I hate to say 21000 sounds affordable, but it's not bad in today's, uh, today's crazy car world. 617-770-3030 is our number. 617-770-3030 is how you get through and talk to us about your car and your car problem. Uh, I had uh, I had a uh, had somebody send me an email, and it was an email of a hang tag someone put on someone's car, and it said it was a 2003 Honda Civic. And it said, airbag recall, get this taken care of ASAP. And it had a business card on the bottom of the, on the bottom of the airbag, on the bottom of the tag. And the person who sent it to me said, uh, this is scare tactics. This isn't good for business. And what it really amounts to is certain older Honda products. So some of the early 2000 ones, all of the cars that have the Honda I mean, all of the cars that have the Takata airbags that can fracture if the airbag deploys and can seriously hurt or kill you uh, are, are being recalled. Uh, most of them have a very minimal chance of anything bad happening. So if you have a car with a defective Takata airbag in it, 
even the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says, don't disconnect the airbag. You're much safer with the airbag in the car because the chances of anything really happening are very, very slim. Except if there are some of these early Hondas, some of these early Hondas from, from the 2000s, the chances of something happening, the testing has shown that there's about a 50-50 chance if the airbag deploys, if you're in a crash and the airbag goes off, there's a 50-50 chance that airbag is going to leave its perch, pieces of plastic are going to fly around inside the car, and you have a chance of getting hurt. So um, so the reason this wasn't a scare tactic, sort of. It was a little bit because it was an older Honda that didn't have didn't have the recall done and it really needs to because they were Honda was actually really concerned about this person and the the airbag recall specialist very well could have been a private detective Honda even went out and hired private detectives to try to find the people that own these cars and get them in to get them fixed for free so the people that own the cars wouldn't get hurt. So if you own one of these older cars and you've been putting off the the airbag repair, you need to really think about getting it done because some of these older cars, the and it's just the Hondas, but the older Honda cars, the, the chance of getting injured is dramatically higher than, than other cars that have the same, same recall. So any of the recalls you should have done, in fact, uh, I, I read a number back years ago that said, 50 or 60 percent of the recalls never get performed and now the car manufacturers are doing a much better job in fact if you go into the dealer for uh for any service the first thing they do is see whether the car has any open recalls and they'll do it before you leave to make sure it's done in fact in some cases even if they don't have the parts they'll say hey look we're going to uh we'll put you in a loaner car we just want to get the recalls done while you're here and you could have a car that might have two or three open recalls that need to be done. And some of them could be pretty minor. I remember my car two cars ago I had. I went into the dealer for some warranty work, and they said, oh, there's a couple of recalls. And one of them was nothing more than a sticker for that had an airbag warning on it. And the other was a piece of foam that went around the jack in the back of the car to keep... You know, I thought it was just to keep it from rattling, but I guess it, it helped secure it a little bit more. And the third was an actual recall that needed to be done. So, uh, so any of the recalls you should have done. Our phone number is 617 We have some calls. Why don't we take our, our second call of the hour here? Good morning. You're on the Car Doctor program. Good morning. John from Boston. John from Boston, is that you? Maybe now it's you. There we go. Oh, right. There we, oh, there there we, we go. go. It, it, only, it, it only works when you push the button. <laughs> I thought they forgot. <laughs> well, anyway, I was going to say, buongiorno tutte, buongiorno, signor Giovanni Paolo, because if you're in Italia, Italy. Well, well uh, you're, 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 your Italian is much better than me. And it's, it's funny, this um, Eric Drigny, he, um, when, I, when, I, um, when I called him, he was um, he was in an Italian immersion camp, so he was at a place where I guess it's it's all Italian all the time, and yeah, right. uh, yeah but and where would and, you know if you had to pick any state in the country, you know where would you where would you say a good place to to learn Italian is, and I'll tell you the answer because you'll never guess uh, Minnesota. Wow. 
Yeah, you would, but, do it. You would think they're about as Italian as French fries at McDonald's out there. Uh, yeah, I, he says. He says. Uh, he says, um, uh, he says, sorry for the delay in getting back to you. I'm, I'm up at a northern Minnesota. I'm up in northern Minnesota, running an overnight Italian language village. Is that right? So, in, in Minnesota, in Minnesota. I thought you only learned Swedish or something in Minnesota. Huh? <laughs> How did he say his last name? Uh, it's it's Dregni, D R E G N I, and I'm sure it's much more Italian sounding than that. So. Because uh, Giovanni would be John. I met a woman. She yeah. named her son Giovanni. Really? That means John, really? Yeah, that's right. Giovanni Pablo, you would tell him, yeah. yeah that that would be it, yeah. And, and there's no Y in the Italian language, so you say Italia. But anyway, uh, your guest uh, mentioned I Am Books. That's in Boston's North End, or it was the North End at one time. Now it's the Yuppie End. And uh, <laughs> that place is across the street from uh, Paul Revere's house. So what once was his house, I guess, in Boston's Yuppie End. He well, the sign that says that. That says that, yeah. It, it, although it, it, now. yeah, well, it's the whole, it's the whole, it's the whole city of Boston. You know, it's it's, uh, you know, I, w- I was in the seaport a month or so ago, and and I hadn't been there for a while, and uh, and you know where there was where there was parking garages, there's uh, there's hotels and buildings going up, and and I think I was there for one of the last few nights of. That uh, that bar down at the end, Whiskey Priest, I guess is on its way out. They're gonna, oh, they're gonna yeah. yeah, they're gonna, yeah, they're gonna convert all that over. So, you know, Boston, Boston is everybody wants to move to Boston, I guess. So, well, he forgot to mention uh, that I believe Vespa's going electric and should be out this year. I don't, did he mention that at all? Uh, he 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 didn't mention that, but I but I was kind of steering the conversation towards the older Vespas because I think. I think no matter who you are, you, there there was a Vespa in your life somewhere. Either you saw it, either you saw it on TV, or you saw it in advertising. There was a Vespa somewhere in your life. So, uh, so that was probably it. So, well, that's that's a great idea. But more modern times, and listen, there was another company. I don't know what became of Oxygen Left On. Have you heard of them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, I had one of the screws. There was a Cambridge company that was renting them about ten years ago for seventy-five dollars a month. That was an Italian-made scooter. Never left me stranded. About thirty miles range. Yeah. And, no. There uh, was there was there was a little uh, there was a little company down in uh, down in Rhode Island that was building electric. Uh, there was sort of electric moped sort of thing, and it was a couple of guys who came from a company that builds those unlimited power supplies, the ones that people have under their desks in case their computers power goes mm-hmm. out. And they used that same technology for their battery systems, and they were building them in uh, they were building them in in Rhode Island, and they ended up I think they ended up shipping out to China and building them there. And I don't think they're sold in the United States. I think they're sold in other parts of the country. And then there was a really high end uh, electric motorcycle that was built in. Fall River in New Bedford, and the thing was, you know, comparable. Oh, Bedford, yeah. Yeah, yeah, comparable. I went down there for their uh, auction, and I thought at the end of the auction, one buyer bought the whole thing out after all that was said and done. Yeah. One, and that, one person, one buyer came in and made a one bid for everything, and I don't know what became of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. Like because everybody bidded on this and that, and these little scooters and little parts where they had, and then one buyer came in and bought the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, because I know that uh, I, I know I know that the uh, the electric their electric motorcycle was a, was really impressive. That was a really impressive motorcycle. So they did build a smaller version, the Vectrix Two. They called it. Oh, I don't remember and, that uh, one, but I remember the big. It one. It was yeah. a big one and a small one. The small one was like good for the city getting around, and um, I haven't seen any lately, and I haven't heard anything about Vectrix lately, and um, one became of them. Uh, that yeah. one. 
Bye. No, we're gonna we're gonna see. You know, you you, you know, you're you're a big fan of electric cars, and we're gonna see. Well, uh, we're gonna see more more and more electric parts. In fact, there's a a story that was out. It might have been in Bloomberg this week or something, and it was talking about electric may replace diesel in in trucks now. So, oh, uh, so like quieter and no smoke and quieter smoke coming out of it. Quieter, yeah, like no, quieter. quieter, no smoke, and, you know, even, you know, whatever happens with Tesla. But, you know, even without that, if you can power up the truck to run enough miles at, you know, one of the things is an electric motor, because of all of its torque, can go up a really steep hill and never lose power, where even the best diesel engine sometimes really has to downshift to go up a hill. So... Performance-wise, the electric motor in a tractor-trailer could potentially outperform a diesel engine, and by the time it needs to be recharged, uh, it's time it's time for the driver to take a break anyway. And if it's really something that takes off, they may even do a battery swap. So you you know the driver pulls into a dedicated electric vehicle truck terminal. Pull out their batteries, put a fresh set of batteries in it, and they're back on the road with minimal minimal wait time. Yeah, Tesla showed that being done in one of their cars faster than yeah. a car could fill up a gas pump. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it's yeah. it's it's definitely something that's there. Uh, you know, we I got an email this week that wanted to know what AAA's position was on charging electric vehicles, and we tried four trucks around the country with big generators on the back of them, and we found that it wasn't. It wasn't that practical because would sit with the person for 20 minutes or a half an hour. Maybe they'd get 15 or 20 miles into the battery pack, and it was easier just to tow them to a charging station where they could get a quicker, more efficient charge. So uh, we still have we still we still have the trucks, but it's not. Uh, but there, you know, for at least here in New England, it's easier for us to tow tow the electric car to a. Uh, to a charging station or back to the person's house, you know, which is which is always which is always an option too. But for the most part, electric vehicle drivers very seldomly run out of electricity. I almost never see them stuck because nope. you know you got a good amount of range. And, and one thing you almost never see is uh, transmission repairs. Most electrics don't have a, a transmission as we know it. Well, you know, one thing one, th- one thing you almost see is nothing going wrong with them. Nothing I remember, going wrong with them. Yeah. moving parts. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember years ago there was a, and they're still around, the company Selectria up in Wilmington. Yeah, that's and, another thing. Whatever happened, I'm going to go ahead and ask yeah, you a question about yeah, them. Yeah, they, they sold their technology to, to GM for diesel buses is the way I understand it. But but the Selectria, they took, uh, they took at the time, Geo Metros, stripped all the engines out of them, put in their their electric uh, propulsion system, and they um, they used uh, back then they were using lithium uh, they were using uh, lead acid or nickel cadmium batteries and the nickel, nickel cad- hydrogen, yeah yeah the nickel, nickel cadmium, hydrogen, yeah yeah and the, the nickel batteries were ridiculously expensive but I remember driving one of the cars and the car was car was absolutely perfect to drive and uh, and yeah and we provided the road service for for their fleet of uh, they had about 150 cars out in a fleet and we provided the road service for them and with the exception of a, a couple of cars would lose some belts every once in a while. We never provided road service for people that outdrove the electric range, uh, which is not the case for people that run out of gas. We provide road service for people that run out of gas every single day. But people with electric cars, I think, are a little bit more cognizant of it, knowing that you know an electric charging station isn't right around the corner. So, 
you know, and gasoline cars do have engine fires. You never hear about that. But any time, once in a while, there's a fire with an electric car. It makes headlines all over the world. Well, yeah, but, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. you know, that's, that's the case with everything. I mean, that, you know, the first uh, self-driving car that got into a crash and, and killed somebody, it made news on every single news outlet around the country. But the thousand people that get killed every day in a car crash never make the news on every single news news outlet. So that you know, it's it's you know, it's the latest greatest thing, and that's part of it. Hey, John, we got to get going. We have more calls. All right, okay. and next week uh, I'll ask you more about selection. If something else to say, I'll call you. Again. All right, all right. Always, always, always a them. pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. All right, you take care now. Bye bye. Six one seven seven seventy thirty thirty six one seven seven seventy thirty thirty is our number. Let's take another call. Our pal Rick from Boston. Rick from Boston, is that you? Yep, that's me. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, I got a question for you, and I also tell you, I sent a second letter in case you know, in case you didn't find the first one. Well, I, I'm not in the studio today. I'm I'm, uh, I'm at my yeah, kitchen table. I'm at my kitchen table today, but I'll be. I'll, I think I'll be in the studio next week, so I'll have to go looking for it. Well, I, I know you're down in the Cape, and that, and I. It's working out a lot better now than it did a few years ago when there was always the bugs. <laughs> there was, there was, there was, there was. It's amazing what happens when you know my equipment hasn't changed, but the equipment at the station has, and that fixed the whole problem. So, yeah. So, um, was, my wife and I were watching you know, TV the other day, and they had a Subaru Forester ad, ad and they mentioned about how ninety-eight percent of those cars are still on the road after ten years. Um, how many cars? Uh, what is the percentage of that for, for cars that make it? You know, from the from the initial sale to ten years down the road, are still riding, driving in that. You know, I bet. You know, I you know, I saw that same commercial, and I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is, but I bet it's I bet it's pretty close to the same number. You know, there's you know, if you bought if you bought a two thousand eight Picket, you know, Ford, you know, Ford Focus. You know, yeah. you know, or if a million people bought a 2008 Ford Focus in 2008, I bet you know 95 percent of them are still on the road. Uh, you know, unless they were crashed or, or uh, you know, or, or some other you know real significant thing. But as far as cars today, you know, you think about a 10 year old car, and the average the average person still drives about 12,000 miles a year. So, you know, 100 120,000 miles. There's nobody that, you know, people get rid of cars before that, but there's, you know, 120,000-mile cars today, you know, have plenty of miles left in them. So I think it's a little bit of, I think it's a, it's truth in advertising that 98% of Subarus uh, are still on the road, but I think it's, uh, but I, I think it really is, you know, probably 98% of Toyotas are still on the road, too. Well, be interesting. maybe I should give you a homework assignment to find out, you know, what the percentages of cars on the road that are on the road after ten years and twenty years? Yeah, so I, no, I, I, I give you a homework assignment. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. That's just what I need. So I'm writing it down now. Ten, ten years, twenty <laughs> years. Yeah, um, but it's in, it's interesting to see whether uh, you know whether the numbers are going to be that way. And I've I've always liked Subaru cars, and in, in, you know, in, even in you know, even they've certainly been when they first came out. Um, you know, I think they rusted on the showroom floor, but they were unique because they were just unique cars. And then when uh, when Ernie Bach Senior sort of decreed that at least here in New England, he was and he was I was at a meeting where it happened, and 
you know, Subaru was either a front-wheel drive or a four-wheel, all-wheel drive car, and the difference in cost to import the cars was was literally $1,000. So he went up to the executive, some senior vice president of Subaru, and said, then why are we bothering bringing front-wheel drive cars into the United States when for $1,000 more they could all be all-wheel drive, something no one else offers? And they had this little conversation. Next thing you know, Subaru's, for the most part, with the exception of their one little sports car, uh, are all-wheel drive. And that made the cars kind of unique. And now, of course, they have the hot rod, the WRX, and the WRX STI for the people that like those. And the Forester has gotten bigger over time. And But, you know, some of the past models from 2003 to 2007 or eight had head gasket problems. Uh, you know, some others had some other issues, and some of them are still having some battery problems, even in the brand new ones. So, but still, they're they're an awfully good car for New England. They they uh, they sort of you see people really using them, you know, with bikes on them and canoes on them and kayaks on them, and uh, and you know, I think I think uh, Subaru works really hard to market to New England to the point where Subaru doesn't put a lot of cars in there press fleet here in New England because the cars so, sell so well on their own. It's almost like they don't need the press to talk about them, which I guess is exactly what I'm doing right now. So, Yeah, because you get guys like me calling in. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but you, know, I, I, you know, I talk to people that buy Subarus, and it's a little bit of a cultish car. People, people buy them, and then they like them, and they give them to their kids, and they buy another one, and they, you know, they get handed down a little bit more than I think some others. I, I, I put Subaru in the same category as people that had Saabs. You know, people who had Saabs loved them for the all the reason that people like Saabs and people have Subarus for kind of the same reason. I think very seldomly you talk to people with Subarus that when they buy them, they go, I'll never buy one of those again. But there are a few of those out there, so. There's a few of those for no matter what. You can, you know, buy somebody a Rolls Royce and, you know, I'll never drive another one. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, if you want to buy, if that letter, if that letter you keep sending to me has the keys to a Rolls Royce in it, I'll, I'll try it out. <laughs> hey, have you just out of curiosity? Have you ever road tested a Rolls Royce? I have. I have driven both a Rolls Royce and a Bentley, and they were the Rolls Royce was uh, was a, first off it was a gigantic car, and and it's hard to say. And I think it was a four hundred thousand dollar car, and I didn't drive it very far. I drove it to an event. I drove it from my house up to an event, and. First off, the way people look at you is is a little disconcerting too, because either they wonder who you are or what kind of jerk you are, one or the other. And um, the other thing, the other thing is they, I mean, they handle they handle extremely well for what they are. The the engine performance is amazing because it's you know how can this big three ton vehicle perform as well as it does. They're super quiet. They ride really well, but they're also $400,000. So you look at a car like that, you kind of go, well, what makes it special? What makes it special is you look at the craftsmanship and how it's assembled and how it's put together is really what makes it special. And, and what, you know, the same thing is you can, you can go out and buy a, you know, a Timex watch that keeps better time than a Rolex watch, but there's a certain 
prestige of having a Rolex over a Timex, and and you can go out and buy you could go out and buy a you know a, a, a very nice you know Toyota Avalon, and have it be do everything that uh, a Rolls Royce can do, but you know, but it's not a Rolls Royce. And you think about uh, and I, I don't know if this is still true to this day, but years ago on the Rolls Royce convertible. When the top went down, there was a uh, a wooden cover that covered the where the roof folded down, so like a wooden tonneau cover, and the type of wood came out of uh, came out of Africa, and they used to float the wood down. I don't know, pick pick a river in Africa. Used to float the wood down the river, and the Rolls Royce coach builders didn't like what happened to the wood because it got stained by the water. So they actually hired uh, teams with elephants to carry the wood out of wherever it was being harvested in Africa so they could get it to England to build the the wooden panels they needed needed to build. Well, you know, Toyota's not doing that with an Avalon. No, so, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. That, that, yeah. Yeah, so so that's what makes that's what makes a Rolls Royce special, and a little bit the big the big uh, the big Bentley sedans kind of the same way. You know, Bentley always had the the reputation of being a sportier version of the Rolls Royce, which I which I guess it is the um, the two door convertible version of the Bentley. It's a very nice car, but those are cars that are they're they're so they're so expensive. Uh, you just kind of look at them and go, wow, these are really nice, but. They're, you know, they're not. They're, they're not. They're certainly not for my budget. <laughs> nor, nor mine. Yeah, I would have to sell everything I owned, and then some. And um, and and I knew somebody years back, and uh, uh, and she passed. She's passed away now. Denise McCluggage. She was an auto writer and a and a and a racer in her younger days. And she told me a story at dinner one time. She wanted a Ferrari, and she wanted a Ferrari to race. And she said she sold everything she had to buy this Ferrari. And she said, no, you don't understand. I sold everything I had. I sold my dishes and my silverware in my apartment. I sold everything I had to buy a Ferrari. And I said to her, was it worth it? And she said, yeah, it was worth it. But, you know, and then, you know, years later she drove a uh, I don't know, Toyota Rav Four or something, but um, but you know, just the idea that somebody would feel that passionate about a car, that's never going to happen with me. No, that then you know, if I cashed in my four hundred one k and uh, sold my house and that, I might be able to get a Rolls Royce or a Bentley, but uh, it wouldn't be worth it. What you know, the problems that create between me and my wife. Yeah, exactly, and you know, you'd have to sleep in the front seat. You'd have to sleep in the back. You know, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Rick. Okay. Have a good right. one. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Six one seven seven seventy thirty thirty six one seven seven seventy thirty thirty. Why don't we take another break? Pay some bills. My name is John Paul. This is the Car Doctor Program. You're listening on AM nine fifty WROL, the Spirit of Boston. We'll be right back.
can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-648-9175. 800-648-9175. That's 800-648-9175. AM 950 WROL Boston, the spirit of Boston. A service of Salem Media Group. New England Fat Loss hopes their thousands of success stories give you some added inspiration. New England Fat Loss has absolutely changed my life. I encourage all of you to give New England Fat Loss a chance. It really works. New England Fat Loss is so much more than a weight loss program. If you want to make a huge lifestyle change, New England Fat Loss is the best move you can make. New England Fat Loss is the greatest lifestyle decision I've ever made. It's absolutely life-changing. This program and the people at New England Fat Loss have changed my life, and I encourage you to set up a consult. The compliments just keep coming and my wife loves the new me thank you new england fat loss the new england fat loss plan was so easy to follow and most importantly it's so easy to continue and maintain new england fat loss is remarkable it went from a 46 waist to a 38 and i'm no longer pre-diabetic new england fat loss has been a remarkable lifestyle coach without a doubt new england fat loss has saved my life set up your consult today at newenglandfatloss.com newenglandfatloss.com AM 950 WROL Boston, the spirit of Boston. A service of Salem Media Group. The more our family grew, the smaller our old car got. So we upgraded to a Honda Odyssey. It's from Kelly Blue Book's 2016 Best Value brand and comes with standard features like Bluetooth, so my wife can remind me of all the things I've forgotten to bring home. Ah, the diapers. Go to www.hondacarsofboston.com or 100 Broadway, Route 99 in Everett, Mass. Call 617-276-1179. Based on 2016 brand image awards from Kelly Blue Book, visit kbb.com for information. See dealer for financing details. Car Doctor Program on AM 950 WROL, the Spirit of Boston. Our phone number is 617-770-3030, 617-770-3030. We still have time for some calls if you would like to join us at 617-770-3030. A couple of emails that came in this week I thought were kind of interesting. One was about uh, uh, somebody who had a windshield damage in a new car. I think it was a 2017 car. And they called their insurance company to see about getting it replaced. And the insurance company said, oh, we're only, we're, we're only going to put an aftermarket windshield in. And they wrote to me and said, what do you think about aftermarket windshields? And, you know, how does the insurance company get away with this? And it has to do with cost. And it was my understanding that most insurance companies would only put uh, aftermarket windshields in if 
well, most insurance companies only put aftermarket windshields in. Uh, the only time they put an original windshield in would be if uh, the aftermarket, for some reason, an aftermarket windshield wasn't available. Say you had a brand-new car and there wasn't a glass company making the aftermarket windshield. Uh, but he did some checking around. I think the insurance company might have been Amica, but I'm not really sure. And he first talked to somebody at a uh, at a glass referral place, and they said, no, no, you can only use the aftermarket. He called his insurance company directly, and the insurance company said, no, no, you can, you can, we'll, we'll pay for it if that's what you want to put in, but you have to ask. And when they called the, when they originally called, and they referred them to the windshield referral company. They said, "No, we're we're only going to authorize an aftermarket windshield unless you want to pay the difference in price, which I think was four hundred dollars." Well, the insurance company, after a little bit of uh, after a little bit of questioning, said, "No, no, you know, you can you can get you can get an original equipment windshield." And in some cases, I want to say the original equipment windshield is going to be better than the replacement. Um, I like to think that, but uh, it seems like today they're building windshields thinner, and I think the optic quality is good, but they seem to break a whole lot easier. And some of it has to do with the aerodynamics. Today's cars are designed in wind tunnels, so the wind travels over them, but in a lot of cases the windshields seem to take the brunt of that. So, uh, But if you are concerned about having your windshield replaced, uh, it appears that with a little bit of a little bit of, uh, I don't want to call it moaning and groaning, but maybe a little bit of that. You can get the factory replacement windshield rather than the than the uh, aftermarket one. And the aftermarket one, I've seen some great aftermarket ones, and I've seen some that actually had waves in the glass. I, I kind of wonder... I, uh, I kind of wonder how the installer actually installed it because not that it didn't fit, but that you looked at it and you're like, wow, it looks distorted. Why they would even leave that in there and and not take it out and order another windshield for it uh, or at least tell the consumer about it and and say, look, we're going to have another windshield on order. We'll we'll replace it in a couple of weeks. The other thing is I like uh, this person had a good-sized stone chip and they were going to actually try to get it repaired first. It was on the passenger side, and I recommended doing that only because I like the idea of the factory seal, and I would rather, on my car, for instance, repair a stone chip than replace a windshield just because I like the idea of the windshields put in in the factory and not and after and not cut out and depending on who does the repairs i watch our guys at the triple a glass company uh, carefully cut out the old adhesive they get it as thin as possible so the new adhesive fits fits that much better the trim all goes on the way it's supposed to but that isn't always the case so uh, so look at look at the look at the windshield look at what you need to need to do with it and uh it works out good. So aftermarket, you, can you get a replacement windshield? The original windshield, yeah, you can. You might have to, you might have to do a little bit of uh, questioning about what they're going to put in um, just to get it done. I know on my wife's Volkswagen, I think the car was six months old. I was driving it to work one day on 495. Sure enough, a stone came up, popped the windshield, put a little chip in it. And um, and I went down and saw our glass guys and said, "Hey, can you fix it?" And I, I have to admit, I've been kind of a 
steady customer with those folks. So, the other thing is, someone wrote to me and said they don't know what it is, but they have kind of a funny, funny distortion on their windshield. They try cleaning it. They try cleaning it with uh, with window cleaner. They try cleaning it with uh, even a, a razor blade, thinking something actually stuck to the windshield. And I have seen this before, and it actually etches the glass. And I'm not sure what it is. I've seen some of the wheel cleaner products actually do it. And in some cases, once the glass has this sort of etching to it, uh, there's nothing you can do other than replace the windshield. So if your windshield has something spilled on it and you don't know what it is or has a weird distortion to it, uh, that is uh, that may require a replacement of the windshield. The other email I got this week was... Um, what is the difference between synthetic and regular oil? And the person said, well, I thought synthetic oil was chemically made and, and not out of the ground from plants and dinosaurs and everything else. Well, in fact, um, synthetic oil can be all chemically derived or it can be made out of base stock, which most synthetic oil is. Most synthetic oil is made out of petroleum base stock, just like regular oil is, but it's refined in such a way and a listener to the show explained this to me 15 years ago and said, here's the difference. Uh, take, take, a, uh, take a bunch of odd-sized balls, pool balls, baseballs, footballs, basketballs, soccer balls, and throw them on top of a pool table. And then take a piece of plywood and try to roll the, roll the plywood around on top of the different size balls. And sure, it rolls around, but it doesn't roll particularly straight, and it doesn't roll that evenly, and that's conventional oil. Then throw six pool balls on the same table, roll the same, put the piece of plywood on top of it, roll it back and forth on top of the pool table, that's synthetic oil. All the molecules are much more uniform, which is why it lubricates quicker, it um, it performs better, and it it's what makes it it's what makes it all work the way it's supposed to. So, uh, synthetic oil better refined, different additives, and that's why it works better. And I still believe that synthetic oil is is a good oil for just about everybody. The last question, and I need our buddy Peter up in Salem, Mister Edsel, to help me with this one. I had a, a, a reader who has a 66 T-Bird. car has been sitting for 26 years, and it runs and drives but doesn't do any of those things well, and he's looking for a Ford mechanic that will be kind of willing to take this car on as a project car. And it's a 66 T-Bird, and it needs some work. And he uh, wants to wants to get it up and running, but he's found that most shops don't really want to. They want to get the car in. They want to get the car out. They don't want to leave. You know, they don't want to kind of work with him. And some of it, and I don't know, some of it could be money wise, but sort of work on it when you can, sort of thing, and get it done. So, um, so Peter, if you have an idea, shoot me an email, and uh, we'll. Uh, We'll get you, uh, we'll see if we can help this guy out with the 66 T-Bird. I know, and my suggestion was go find a, uh, a T-Bird club or a Ford club or a Mercury club or an Edsel club and ask where they're getting their car service. That might help. And finally, the Subaru battery drain problem is still a problem. Uh, I got an email from somebody in California that said, I had my battery go dead and Subaru updated the software, but even after three different garages told me the battery's no good, 
the Subaru dealer said the battery's fine, and he, he ended with "Wish me luck." The New England fix for this, from what I understand, is they update the software for the charging system, and they put the bigger battery in that goes in the six-cylinder Subarus, and that has more reserve capacity, which makes it work. So we're starting to run out of time, but I bet our buddy Bobby Brooks is in the studio. Bobby, are you there? Bobby? Hello, Bobby. I say, I say hello there. How, hello there. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. Nice to hear your voice. Hey, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. What's a Vespa? <laughs> <laughs> a Vespa is an Italian motor scooter. It's very curvy and well-designed. Like uh, me. Like you. Like you. Exa- exactly the same. <laughs> only it's Italian instead of, instead of Irish. But uh, it is a... Uh, it, it is... If you look at any... 1960s advertising. You will probably see a Vespa in it, including, uh, you know, uh, you know, pick pick an Italian superstar, Gina Lola Brigida. She was probably on a Vespa. So, uh, but, but they're they're all over the place. Hey, that music means we got to get going. We got to get out of the way for Bobby Brooks, who's filling in for Professor Paul Sullivan and the Irish Hip Parade. Until next week, make sure you wear your seatbelt, drive safely, and be good to your car. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.